May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 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 It's good to be with you this morning. Good to be worshiping with you. Um, This morning we're going to be looking at the parable of the shrewd manager from Luke 16. Sometimes it's called the parable of the dishonest manager um, because the protagonist in the parable, if you noticed, uh, if you can actually call him a protagonist, he actually comes across as as a pretty shady guy, doesn't he? And uh, he's not really a hero in any normal sense of the word. To be shrewd is to have an ability to understand things, the way that things work, to make good judgments, to be mentally sharp or clever, to be savvy. Um, But just because you're shrewd doesn't mean that you're actually a good person, right? You can be a shrewd person without being a good person, and that seems to be what's going on here, doesn't it? So some have called the inclusion of this story in the Gospel of Luke an embarrassment. Some have called the inclusion of this parable into the Gospel of Luke an embarrassment. Why? Why do they see this this as an embarrassment? Well, first, because um, it appears that Jesus is commending an immoral man. Right? Uh, In verse 8, the master in the parable uh, shockingly commends the dishonest manager. He commends the dishonest manager. Did did that strike anybody else as odd? Yeah, it's, it's an odd thing. And then second... If this isn't enough, um, Jesus turns around and encourages us, in some sense, to follow his example. In verse 9, Jesus says that we should make friends for ourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive us into eternal dwellings. What? <laughs> that, that does not sound very honest or holy, right? That, uh, how could these words be coming from the mouth of the sinless Son of God? For these reasons, scholars down through the ages have referred to this parable as the crux interpretum, which is Latin for really stinking hard to interpret. (laughs) It's the cross for the interpreters. Others have called it the problem child of the Gospels, a notorious puzzle, and one scholar referred to it as the prince among the difficult parables. But regardless of these intimidating statements... I'm actually glad this is our passage this morning because I believe that once we get into it, there's a particular word that the Lord has for us through this. That the Lord has a word for this generation of disciples through this. So what's the message of this parable? Um, What's it about? I think it's about three things. It's about God by analogy. It's about money specifically. And it's about the kingdom generally. So it's about God by analogy, about money specifically, and about the kingdom generally. I'd be grateful if you turned to this parable in the beginning of Luke 16. It's on page 875 of your pew Bible, if you have one. If you don't have one, he'll circulate some for you back there. And if you remember, um, Jesus has just finished telling the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. And here the audience is actually the same. We, we learn that the disciples are with him in verse 1, but we also learn in verse 14 that um, the Pharisees are still listening uh, to him because they're, they're still buzzing around. And, um, and actually, we see a connection with the parable of the prodigal son right here in verse 1. So let's read this. It says, um, He also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and, uh, and charges were brought to him, 
that this man was wasting his possessions. This man was wasting his possessions. So the rich man has this other manager who's in charge of some things, and he's wasting his possessions. The interesting thing is that the Greek word here for wasting his possessions is the same word that was used of the prodigal when he goes into a foreign country and he squanders his inheritance. That, that word squanders, it's the same word here. So he's wasteful. He's wasteful like the prodigal. And, uh, and so the rich man called him in verse 2 and said to him, What's this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager. So the rich man, he's like, hey, I put you in charge of this stuff, but it's my stuff. I want to know what you've been doing. I've been hearing all kinds of reports and everything. And, um, and the manager said to himself, self? <laughs> he's thinking to himself, right? He's kind of scheming. He says, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me and I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I mean, this is a really disgraceful picture of this person, right? He's like, I've been dishonest in business, and um, I'm ashamed to beg. I'm not really strong enough to dig. It, it reminds me of, uh, I don't know the name of this character, but, th- but throughout the, the new rendition of, of the movies The Hobbit, there's, there's that guy who's always kind of like weaseling his way out of things, you know, uh, like when there's a new king or somebody new's in charge, he just kind of comfies right up to them and starts sweet-talking them. And it's just all these different ways of weaseling his way out. That seems to be going on uh, with the shrewd manager here. And, uh, and he says, I've decided what to do. So he hasn't been dismissed yet. Somehow he still has the authority. He still, he still sort of represents the company. He still has the uniform, right? And uh, he says, so that when I'm removed from management... People may receive me into their houses. So he's like, I'm about to have no income. So what would be really nice is if I could kind of curry favor with other people so that, you know, so that they like actually provide for me, so that they'll actually take care of me instead. And he's so summoning his master's debtors one by one. This is just a terrible thing to do. <laughs> summoning his master's debtors um, one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? And um, he said, a hundred measures of oil. I mean, this is, this is a massive amount that he owes him. I mean, tens of thousands of dollars that he owes him. And, uh, and he says, uh, take your bill and sit down and quickly write 50. So, I mean, he just totally cut this person's debt completely in half. I mean, completely in half. And then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said, take your bill and write 80. Now, what do you think these people who just had their bills slashed, how do you think they're, they're going to think about this manager? Right? They're going to they're gonna like this guy. They're going to feel indebted to this guy. You just saved the farm, you know? You just saved me tens of thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars. And, and some people have pointed out that actually um, the, the rich man might have been doing something dishonest here, too. Um, some people have suggested that contextually... Um, uh, the Jews, they weren't allowed to um, lend on interest. Usury, uh, is, it's called usury, it's condemned in the Old Testament. They're not allowed to lend on interest. So what they would do sometimes to get around that is they would lend in kind instead of in money. They would say, you owe me interest in the form of oil, or you owe me interest in the form of wheat. That was a way of kind of weaseling around that. So some people are suggesting maybe he's cutting the interest. Some have questioned that because it, it seems like so much money. Some people have suggested maybe he's, he's cutting his own cut 
of what the people were going to pay him anyway. Um, most scholars reject that just because it, it, it seems too high, you know, that he was trying to you know, get twice as much out of somebody, and, and others have suggested that when people did that, they didn't write it on the books. You know, when people were asking for a little something on the side, they made sure that it wasn't on the books. This stuff was on the books, and as far as they know, the rich man who, who's being represented by this manager, who's being represented by this steward, is being just very kind to them. So they're like, hooray, you know, this guy's, this rich man, wow, this is great. They start celebrating, you know, the rich man's reputation is bolstered in that region. So he's kind of, uh, the rich man is kind of painted in, into a corner by this, uh, by this savvy, shrewd, dishonest manager. And uh, it says in verse 8, that the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. That's, that's kind of a surprising reaction, isn't it? Do you think he would just be furious, but he's kind of like, well played. I see what you did there. And, uh, and Jesus says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with this generation than the sons of light. Now, I think one of the things that we're worried about in this passage, one of the things that people are worried about Jesus, one of the things that people are worried about God, is that this passage is basically saying God really wants his kind of, his stuff, his agenda, his business to happen, and he doesn't care how it happens. He doesn't care if you're dishonest, he doesn't care if you're immoral, he doesn't care about anything like that. But even if, you know, if, if this, this person has been acting in this unethical way, the question is, is, is that what the master is actually commending? Is he actually commending that? Um, it reminds me of, of the movie Catch Me If You Can. Have you ever seen this movie? So it's uh, starring uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. And uh, the music is by John Williams, the same guy who did the, the Star Wars thing. Uh, except for it's like less huge, it's more like spy versus spy. It's like did it did it, you know. It's it's real it's real slick. If you've never seen this movie, but what but what's entertaining about uh, the movie Catch Me If You Can is not that you're getting to follow like a true hero, like a moral good guy. What's what's entertaining is that you're you're getting to follow this young con artist. He's 18 years old, and somehow um, he's able to con people in believing he's a pilot. Um, and he's flying free all over the world. At one point, he, he convinces some um, young lady's father that he's a doctor, and he spends some time in the hospital, and then he, he poses as a, as a lawyer. And you're kind of following, and he's, 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 uh, he's making all these false checks, and it's, it's, it's sort of like a, like a heist movie. You know, when you watch these, these thieves come up with these very complex plans to, like, rob a bank... And you're like, I don't really care that much about the bank. This is kind of cool the way that they're doing this. Yeah. <laughs> right? What's entertaining to us is not that these guys are like morally upright heroes. What's entertaining to us is how shrewdly they're acting. And that's what's going on with this young man. It's actually based on a true story of this guy, Frank Ab Ab Abagnale. And, uh, and he actually did this stuff. He actually did these things. And uh, how did he learn how to, how to con people? He actually learned it from his father. And his father's this sort of two-bit con artist in the movie played by Christopher Walken. But he surpasses his father in every way. So when he gets together with his father, his father always wants to know, have you been to any exciting places lately? You know, what have you seen? What have you, and, he, and he tries to give his father these expensive gifts, right? 
And at one point, he's, got, he's kind of getting worn out about tricking everybody. Um, the, the, you know, Frank is getting worn out on doing that. And, and he proposes marriage to this woman. And he meets with his father to give his father an invitation for the wedding. And he says to his father, um, I'm going to stop now. His father already wants to kind of brag about their cons. He says, I'm going to stop now. And, and the father doesn't like this. He's like, but, you know, you know Frank, they're never going to catch you, he says. He says, come on, come on, sit with me, have a drink. I'm your father. And, and the DiCaprio character says, then ask me to stop. He says, ask me to stop. And uh, Christopher Walken, his, his father, he says, you can't stop. You can't stop. And so this, this character, this young man, is just yearning for some moral guidance from his father. You've taught me how to be shrewd, but tell me to stop. Tell me to stop doing this stuff. This stuff is terrible that I'm doing. And it's a powerful scene, and I, I think it gets to the heart of why we're afraid to trust God in this passage. We're afraid God wants to influence us to do kingdom things, and he doesn't really care about the morality of how, how we do it. Like, he doesn't mind if we do just, like, bait and switch or use really dishonest methods. He doesn't mind that. But that's not the point. That's not what God is like. In fact, earlier in the Gospel of Luke, if you remember when Jesus sent out the 70 on mission, he says they should be what? Shrewd as serpents, but innocent as doves. Shrewd as serpents, but innocent as doves. He said, I want you to think in this kind of shrewd way, but in your morality... I want you to be innocent as dove. God cares about our moral actions, about our innocence, about the purity of our motivations. But that's not what this parable is about. Right? This parable is about shrewdness. And, um, and, and we have a problem with that. And, and one of the things that we have a problem with, um, one, of the, one of the most important theologians in church history is a guy named Thomas Aquinas. And um, one of the things that Aquinas taught was that um, we can only really talk about God by analogy. Um, because, because we never get... I mean, God is an infinite being. We're finite. You can't pour the ocean into a bucket, right? It doesn't fit. And so, so we, we, kind of, we kind of can kind of understand God, but we understand Him by analogy. Jesus said, I spoke to you of earthly things and you did not understand. How then will you understand if I speak to you of heavenly things, right? I mentioned that in, in my last sermon. And so, so we say, the Lord is my refuge, the Lord is my hiding place. We say, oh God, my rock and my redeemer. We say God is a father to the fatherless. And these are all analogies that help us to understand true things about God. It's not that we can't know true things about God. It's that we can only know it, you know, sort of by analogy because God is actually more wondrous than we could possibly imagine. And uh, so when we say these things, he's, he's our refuge, he's our rock, he's, he's the father to the fatherless, we're saying that God is comforting, he's a protector, God is strong, God loves us in a very personal way. These are the kind of things that we're saying about God. Alistair McGrath summarizes Aquinas' point in this way. He says that Aquinas merely affirms that, that, that all this merely affirms, excuse me, that there's a likeness or correspondence between God and that created being or that created thing, which allows the judge or the rock to act, act for us as a signpost to God. A created entity can be like God without being identical to God. So the rich man in this story, 
Um, there's some ways in which he's like God. He's got power. He's got influence. He's got wealth. He commends somebody's shrewdness because he knows how to appreciate shrewdness, but there's some ways that he's not like God, right? We see this um, just a couple chapters later in, in Luke chapter 18 um, when we hear the parable of the unjust judge, right? The, the widow who keeps going to this unjust judge asking for justice. And God compares himself to that unjust judge, but he contrasts himself with him morally, right? Or think of the phrase in the scriptures where it says that Jesus is coming like a thief in the night. Right? In his second coming, he's going to come like a thief in the night. Does that mean that Jesus like, supports like breaking an entry in the middle of the night? No! It's saying that it's going to shock people. It's going to surprise people. He's going to come at a time when people are not expecting it. And so sometimes Jesus used morally questionable characters as a way of sort of shocking his disciples into paying attention. They're like, what? What's this story about? Right? And um, one scholar writes, In the midst of conduct morally blamable, the wicked often display remarkable qualities of activity, prudence, and perseverance, which may serve to humble and encourage believers. The parable of the unjust steward is a masterpiece of this sort of teaching. So the point is that um, when it comes to the work of the kingdom, God commends the use of our whole brain. Right? We just talked about the greatest commandment. John just read it at the beginning of this service. We're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. I mean, everything we have to leverage, we bring to the altar of the Lord, right? It's not just like, oh, well, God wants that religious part of me. That's just like sort of naive and innocent. That's the part of me that he wants to devote to himself. No, the Lord wants to, us to devote our whole selves to him. God is not condoning immorality. He's commending shrewdness. So first, the parable is, is about God by analogy. Second, it's about money specifically. That's the specific story. That's the primary topic in the story. And that's what the Pharisees actually, right after Jesus tells this story, gets all fired up about, right? So it's important to deal with. Uh, I'll, I'll argue in a bit that money is actually, in this parable, just really the presenting issue. Um, it's actually about a, a bigger issue um, for the Lord, but, but let's first talk about the sense in which Jesus wants to talk about money. So first of all, we, we get in, in verse 1 of this parable, um, we hear about this, this shrewd manager or this dishonest manager. That word manager um, can also be translated steward. It's translated that way actually several times uh, in the scriptures, uh, and it's translated that way in the King James Version of this story. In Greek, it was often uh, a term used for a former slave who's been released, but they were a very trusted servant to the master, and so then the master puts them in charge of a whole bunch of stuff. So that seems to be what's going on with this person. And he would have had real power, the manager had real power, although none of the stuff actually belonged to him, right? He was a steward. He'd have to give an account for what he did with that stuff. So how does this relate to us? Um, the connection is actually, I think, obvious. Psalm 24, verse 1, that we just sang a few moments ago, says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. How many of you own a laptop? How many of you own a laptop? The earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof. How many of you own a laptop? 
The earth is the Lord's and all the fullness thereof. How many of you own a laptop? The point is, is that everything belongs to the Lord, right? It's only on loan to us. We're stewards of it. And in fact, in this, this Old Testament reading that we get in Malachi, um, where, where he's saying, hey, these, these people, you're, you're robbing me. You're robbing God. And, and these people are like, how are we robbing you? We're not robbing. What are you talking about? <laughs> he's like, you're robbing me by not giving me the tithes and offerings that you're supposed to give in the law. This is what he's telling to the people of Israel at this time. And, uh, and these people are like, no, we, we, we don't rob. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, the way in which, the reason why the Lord could accuse them of robbery is because the Lord views everything they have as his. And he says, I, I actually just asked you to give a percentage of that. That's all I asked for you to do. Everything belongs to me. So failing to be generous as believers, if in the old covenant, how much more so in the new covenant? Failing to be generous is a form of robbing God. Continuing on from verse 9, Jesus summarizes the meaning of this parable. He says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. That's a quotable phrase. So that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So this worker forsook financial gains, um, these temporal, short-term financial gains from for something more long-term and valuable, which is relationships, right? Jesus says, make friends for yourself. One of, the, one of the main ways that we measure poverty is actually not just do you have or do you not have. It's do you have a support network? What if you fell on hard times? Is there somebody that would take you into their house? If you fell on hard times, do you have a connection and somebody could at least get you like a, like a lower entry job? The world's poor don't have that sort of thing. Right? So even if we feel like I don't have that much money, probably if we're living in the United States, we have some measure of connection, some of us more than others. And so he's saying, you know, put your money into eternal things. You know, the, at this time, the friends would have been more important than, than the wealth. Um, and, 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 and in a sense, when we give, when we give to the kingdom... We put our money into the word of God. If someone hears the word and becomes a disciple of Jesus, you've made a friend forever. Right? You've made a friend forever. And anybody, anybody who's ever led somebody to the Lord, that, you know, um, or, or been led to the Lord by somebody, it's like the person who shared the gospel with you. They have a special place in your heart. They have a special place in your life. But it's not just about evangelism. This passage is specifically talking about care for the poor. The rabbis had a saying at this time, which is that the rich help the poor in this world, but the poor help the rich in the age to come. They actually had this thought, this notion, uh, and they're talking about all of Israel, so they're talking about all the people of God. You know, they're not just kind of talking about people who believe any old thing or whatever, but as they talked about the people of Israel, they said, you know, the rich help the poor in this life, the poor will help the rich in the next life. How do they think that the poor help the rich? They said, if you give to them, they have a role in actually welcoming you, welcoming you into the kingdom. Right? They actually have, the poor actually have a, a role of saying, the rich, that, that person, I know they had a lot of money, but they were merciful to me. They showed me mercy. We're going to get into um, the, the, the exact opposite of this next week, or, or, or in like a, a couple weeks or whatever, when we talk about um, the rich man and Lazarus, 
uh, the rich man who had no mercy on Lazarus. It's, it's sort of the opposite. I thought about that thing, that, um, that, that, that notion that the Jews had in Jesus' day, and I thought to myself, did Jesus agree with that? Did Jesus agree? And I think my best answer, based on all the things that Jesus had to say about money in the Gospels, is yes. That it, now, now, I don't want to say this in a crass way. Like, we can, like, buy our way into heaven. We can, like, trick God. It's like, I've been a shyster my whole life, but I'm, I'm going to kind of kick a hundred grand to the poor on, like, my last day. And, like, you know, the Lord, regardless of my heart or, or what I believe or, 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 or my inner intentions or whatever, he's just going to, you know, by that work, sort of let me into heaven. But Jesus consistently said, I remember um, reading a book, uh, What Jesus Says About Money, or it had a title, real, real blunt title like that, uh, by Frank C. Laubach, who really um, started the world literacy movement, who was, who was kind of key in that. And he highlighted everything that Jesus had to say about money, and it's actually unbelievable. Like Jesus is just constantly saying, don't store up for yourselves treasures in this world where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. How do you store up for yourselves treasure in heaven? Jesus says, have mercy on the poor. Jesus says, give to them. Then you'll have treasure in heaven. We don't like that. That sounds like too crass to us. But Jesus, that's what he says, right? That's why the early church father Ambrose said, the bosoms of the poor, the houses of the widows, the mouths of children are the, are the barns which last forever. The bosoms of the poor, the houses of the widows, the mouths of the children are the barns which last forever. And Jesus continues, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, See, we think Jesus is making a big deal about money, but he's actually trying to make a small deal about money. He's like, this is just like, this is nothing. This is just like, you know, this is Guitar Hero. This isn't actually in, like knowing how to play Sweet Home Alabama, you know? I mean, some people put so much time into Guitar Hero, they could, if they transferred that to an actual guitar, they could play Sweet Home Alabama, right? Jesus says, this is, this is, this is, the, this is the little thing. This is the unrighteous wealth. Who will then entrust you with true riches, he asks. And if you've not been faithful with that, which, with that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So we, we see this lesson. We see this lesson that, that there's a sense in which our, our attitude toward money, our use of money, sort of takes our spiritual temperature. It says sort of where our overall life and focus toward God is. Tim Keller says that, that you can be generous with your money and not with your time. You know, you can be generous with your money and not with your home or your relationships, but he says you can't be generous of heart without also being radically financially generous. Right? He says you're, you're deceiving yourself if you think that's the case. Why? Because, you, you know, Jesus always brings it back to the heart. He says you can't serve two masters. He says that in this passage. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and Money. You can't serve both God and mammon. I, I, I'm fond of saying, why, why is it the case? Why can't I serve both God and money? Well, sometimes Jesus wants you to take the better paying job. But there's going to come a time where the almighty dollar wants you to do something that Jesus doesn't want you to do. Isn't that funny that we call it the almighty dollar? It, it's because it has a God-like quality. 
It has a God-like effect on the lives of people. There's going to be a, come a time when, when the almighty dollar is, is, is saying go this way and Jesus is saying go that way. And whoever you follow, that's your master. It says in verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. They ridiculed him. It literally means they turned up their noses at him. Oh, Jesus, he's, he's so impractical. He doesn't realize that's not how it, how it really works. You know, Jesus, he's, he's so sanctimonious. He doesn't understand things like savings and loans and retirement. When is he going to just get his life together? He's the son of man, and he doesn't even have a place to lay his head. Oh, really? I ask you, does not the one who made the world have wisdom into its operations? And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. There's, a, there's about three or four like quote, quote board kind of quotes in this, right? What is exalted by men is an abomination in the sight of God. Right now uh, at Incarnation, we're actually in the midst of uh, like a stewardship month in, in October. Um, the, the funny thing is, um, I didn't even have to plan to preach a special sermon on money. Um, I, all we did was go through the Gospel of Luke, and one of the sermons was like totally about money. Actually, I think the next one, you know, Jesus, I mean, Jesus talks about it so often. Why does he talk about it so often? Because it's so important for our discipleship. And this year, we're actually not like doing like a pledge drive where we're asking people to kind of write down exactly what they're giving. We actually are, are trying to meet with different small groups and have a conversation with people so that people can understand how to take the next step in their discipleship when it comes to stewardship. And so our goal is, is to help people learn how to be shrewd for the kingdom when it comes to your finances. So it's about, this parable is about God by analogy. It's about money specifically. Um, but finally, it's about the kingdom generally. And I'm actually going to conclude with this section. And um, I, I contend that this passage is not actually primarily about money. Money, money is just sort of a... Money. Uh, money is just sort of the presenting issue here. Right? It's, 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 a, it's a useful topic for helping us to understand the difference between the ways of the world and the ways of the kingdom. Going back to verse 8, I think that this is really the heart of the passage. Jesus says, The master commended the dishonest manager. Why? Because he's dishonest? No, for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. I remember... Um, a ways back, I was, I was preaching at this church retreat. And the brief I was given um, about the congregation um, was that um, it had, like, a lot, of, uh, a lot of intellectual, a lot of kind of, like, socially powerful people um, at it. And um, uh, this is, this is uh, out of this state, uh, is a, a congregation not in Florida. Um, but the person said... Um, but they're absolutely clueless when it comes to, to the mission of God, when it comes to living in the mission of God. Um, and uh, and I, I said to the person, literally, I said, bullcrap. That's a, I was like, bullcrap. They, they can't be that shrewd in their business dealings. They can't be that creative. They can't know how to do all this stuff in the world and then just kind of be like, but we don't know how to participate in the mission. 
You know, we don't know, we, don't, we have no idea how to do evangelism. We have no idea how to pray. We have no idea what it means to have mercy on the poor. I think Jesus would call their bluff. I think he would say, why is it that you can be so shrewd with unrighteous mammon, but be such a beginner when it comes to the things of the kingdom? I, one, time, one time I was teaching at, at another parish retreat, different, different congregation. I think I shared this story a couple months back. And, um, and uh, we, we did some teaching on prayer using, using uh, the Lord's Prayer and journaling and stuff like this. And we kind of got into the mechanics of helping people like, really learn how to pray. And I remember I was in the restroom after that, and I was approached by this man who was um, probably in his mid to late 70s. <laughs> Some of you are like, approached by a dude in the restroom? Yeah, that's, that's against the rules in a dude's restroom. <laughs> I mean, he was, he, he was just being a sincere, good, you know, good guy. Uh, and he, he just came and said, um, he said, uh, I've been going to, ch- I'm 75 years old or whatever. And he said, I've been going to church my whole life. I think that's the first time that I ever actually prayed. So I think that's the first time that I ever really prayed. And... Um, on one sense, that, that made me really super excited because it meant that this teaching and this, this space that we made for, for them to pray, he really engaged and the Lord met him. On another, on another hand, I, I want to say that there's kind of a failure on the part of the church there, isn't there? It's like he's been going to church his whole life and no one ever slowed down and helped this guy learn how to connect with the Lord in prayer. But there's also personal responsibility that he bears, right? Because there had to be someone around him who knew about prayer. There had, to be, there, you know, there had to be books available. There had to be space that he could have made, right? Just one more story and then I'll wrap up. A few years ago, a couple of my friends um, started to uh, proactively seek to help this homeless man. And, uh, and it was one of their first times ever stepping out in this way. And they would just kind of bring this man pizza, you know, wherever he was, and, and you know, talk with them. And uh, at one point, uh, they even had the man kind of stay in their house for a little while. Well, what they didn't really realize is that this person, like, had severe mental issues and was really hustling them in a lot of ways, was really using them. And the longer that they had that relationship, the more they realized, hey, this person is really trying to, this, re- this person is really, like, we're, we're not actually helping this person. We're actually hurting this person. There's a book called When Helping Hurts. That's what was going on. Um, and when they finally realized that, it was hard and painful to kind of like get themselves untwined in this relationship, right? Because, because it, it had gone so far. And, um, and I think back on that story, and, and I, I, don't, I, I don't actually, I, I commend those two young men for taking that risk. I think it was great. I mean, it was, it was their first step. It was, it was them saying, Jesus says we should have mercy on the poor, and so they tried things, and they, and they messed up, right? So that, that's just that's them when they're young men. That's, that's them when, when, they're, when they're lacking maturity. My biggest concern would be that they don't take that experience and say, well, I know about helping the poor now, and I know that it doesn't really work. Right? You know? My, my biggest desire would be that they say, hey, you know, when, when I was young, I thought like a child, I acted like a child, but when I get older, when I got older, I put my childish ways behind me. That they would desire to mature in their understanding of what it means to help somebody who's homeless, right? Some of us are going to be more mature in some ways than others or whatever, 
And all this can sound very pressurized. But Jesus doesn't expect us to be mature and savvy disciples overnight. Right? It's really about what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. When it comes to things of the kingdom, like evangelism and prayer and giving and interacting with the poor, Jesus wants us to grow. Right? He doesn't want us to be at the same place now, uh, same place two years from now that we are now in these areas. He wants us to be growing and making progress, progress because we're using our minds, we're using all our savviness, we're using all our creativity to seek to grow in these ways. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. May this increasingly not be true of us at Incarnation and not be true of you in your own walk with God. Amen.